0: In lecture two of his work, Pragmatism, William James is going to set out the outlines of the pragmatic theory of truth, which he distinguishes from the closely connected pragmatic method of examining ideas or resolving disputes. Here he's focused more on, well, what do we mean to say that something is true or correspondingly to call it false? And James is not fully fleshing this out. He defers that to later lectures, but he is giving us some really important outlines. Pragmatism has often been summed up as the theory that truth is just what works or what somebody would like to be true or finds useful. And that's not entirely true. And I mean true, not just in the pragmatic sense, but in other senses that people use, using that term quite self-consciously there. That's not really true of James's position, which is a bit more complex than that, and which is placed in relation to not just his own philosophy and psychology, it's important to remember he is a psychologist, nor that of his predecessor Charles Sanders Peirce and his contemporary John Dewey, but also a lot of working scientists of the time. This this pragmatic conception of truth is, in fact, quite a popular one when we, we look at it quite carefully. So I think it's useful before we delve into what James says explicitly about this as a theory of truth to think about the narratives that he is providing us here in part because he tells us that pragmatism is in fact a genetic theory of truth. And what does a genetic theory of truth mean? It's kind of similar to what in other places people like say you know Friedrich Nietzsche would call a genealogical conception right a genetic theory of truth is one that traces out how something came to be viewed as true and it's largely going to be in terms of human interests and needs and and what manages to fit itself in with other things that are acknowledged as true so he talks first about laws of nature and and he's not saying anything that's truly controversial here if you Know something about the history of, of ideas and the history of science. He tells us that writers on the subject of inductive logic have begun to show a singular unanimity as to what the laws of nature and elements of fact mean when formulated by mathematicians, physicists, and chemists. So we're talking here about something that's a very pure discipline and then something that's, you know, still very abstract, physics, although now it's studying material things, and then chemistry, we're starting to get, you know, more and more along the spectrum, which will lead us into biology and then into other things like the social sciences. So he says that, when the first mathematical logical and natural uniformities the first laws were discovered men were so carried away by the clearness beauty and simplification that resulted that they believed themselves to have deciphered authentically the eternal thoughts of the almighty or if if we don't have to be the almighty it could be nature they've gained an understanding of the universe somebody who this would be applying to would be you know the great not just philosopher but also mathematician Rene Descartes, right? In his early works, he talks about having discovered that mathematics could possibly be the basis for everything. And so he says that these people's mind thundered and reverberated in syllogisms. They also thought in conic sections, squares and roots and ratios and geometrized like Euclid. He made Kepler's laws for the planets to follow. He made velocity increase proportionally to the time in falling bodies. And we can go on and on and on. He's giving all these great examples. He thought the archetypes of all things and devised their variations. And when we rediscover any one of these wondrous institutions, we seize his mind, the divine mind, in its very literal intention, or nature, or the cosmos, or whatever we want it to be. And that is in fact, a picture of the sciences that I think a lot of people still have today because a lot of people love the sciences with a certain sort of superstition. They don't actually know much about science. They've learned some things in their science classes in high school and from reading Wikipedia or less wrong or pick whatever other site you want. And these are the people who are science, logic, reason, you know, constantly bombarding you with appeals to those sort of things. But if we actually look at the history of the development of science and we read people who were scientists and express their own thoughts about what they were doing, turns out the story takes a different turn. He says that as the science has developed farther, the notion has gained ground that most perhaps all of our laws are only approximations. The laws themselves have grown so numerous there is no counting them. Many rival formulations are proposed in all the branches of science that investigators have become accustomed to the notion that, here's the key, no theory is absolutely a transcript of reality, but any one of them may from some point of view be useful. There's the key. A realization that what we want with theories is not sort of having a blueprint in our mind of the reality out there just for the sake of doing so, for the sake of truth alone, you might say, but so that we can do things. Now this goes all the way back to say, bacon, the idea of studying nature so that we can actually do something with nature. Of course, he wanted to dominate it. Perhaps we don't necessarily need to go to that rhetoric. That could be part of an advance. Maybe we don't want to dominate. So we find other ways of understanding nature that don't require us to do that. James goes on and says that the great use of theories is to summarize old facts and lead to new ones. They're only a man-made language, a conceptual shorthand in which we write our reports of nature and languages as is well-known, tolerate much choice of expression in many dialects. And he goes on and he says, human arbitrariness is driven to divine necessity from scientific logic. Human arbitrariness being our desires, our needs, our wishes, what it is that we're trying to do with ideas. And then he brings, he does a bit of name dropping here, bringing up people who some of you will have heard of, but many of these you, you won't have, Sigwert, Mach, Ostwald, Pearson, Milhoud, Poincaré, Duhem, Royson, and, right? And, and he's talking to people who know these at the time, we could bring up other scientists of our own time. Very few of them buy into there being like a truth that's out there, static for all time for us to discover. And and many of them have a more pragmatic attitude towards that. So there's a story that's being told here about how we've gone from an earlier point of view, which was less adequate to a more adequate point of view. And this is a genetic story. A little bit later on, he talks about ancient truths, and he says that the observable process which Schiller and Dewey, both of them being philosophers here, singled out for generalization is the familiar one by which any individual settles into new opinions, and we're going to look at that elsewhere. And he talks about these processes of truth's growth. There are, in fact, older truths things that have been around for a very long time. He says, Dewey and Schiller proceeded to generalize the observation that we're going to look at in just a moment and to apply it to the most ancient parts of truth. They were once plastic. They were true for human reasons. They mediated between earlier truths and what in that day were novel observations. So pretty much everything that we nowadays accept, somebody had to come up with that idea. And at first, a lot of people rejected it, but other people were like, well, maybe there's something to that. I'll try that on. And the things that were successfully accepted were the things that were successfully applied or adapted within the framework of what we had. And every once in a while, old truths fall out, sort of like dead skin cells falling away, and they're replaced by new ones. Again, genetic theory of truth. And ancient truths that were once plastic and then become sort of ossified can also be reinterpreted in ways that make them once again living and flat flexible. So this is an important narrative that's being spelled out here. Now let's look at, you know, sort of the, the nuts and bolts of this theory. James says that Dewey and all of his allies, as he calls them, Mr. Dewey, Schiller, and their allies are following the example of geologists, biologists, and philologists, right? They are saying that the truth is going to be what we can use. And, and here's the key idea. Ideas are true, Just so far as they help us to get into satisfactory relation with other parts of our experience. This is Dewey's formulation that James is bringing up here. Now, Dewey is a rather opaque author. People who read him often come away quite confused and looking at this passage, you might say, well, that's confusing, too. So let's let's break it down. What's actually being said there? Ideas. These are things that we have in our mind and also have in language and to some degree also have in action. They are also part of experience. They are true, according to the pragmatic theory of truth, or as Dewey calls it, the instrumentalist view insofar as they help us, the people who are actually going to say that they're true, to get into satisfactory relation with other parts of our experience. They help us to make sense out of the world. And they're not just functioning in an explanatory way, they're also functioning in an action-guiding sort of way. I'll give you just a prime example taken from personal life. I come in from teaching and I I find that the dog is, instead of laying by the door waiting for me to come in, is lying on her side, panting and moaning. And I think, whoa, what's, what's going on here? This is unusual, right? So that's part of my experience already. I already have a whole range of experience lying behind me, which includes the fact that the dog in question is a glutton who will eat whatever she can to the degree that she can if we for example leave the top to the food container open she will use her mouth like a shovel pull out food spit it out onto the floor gobble it all up she will eat pounds and pounds of it because she has done that in the past right that's part of my experience and so i immediately start thinking to myself She's probably gotten into the food thing. I'd better go check that. And let's say now I do that and nope, there's no food around. And the top is not off. And even if it was, she couldn't go in there. Now I start thinking about other things. Well, what what could be going on here? Maybe she fell down and hurt herself. Or perhaps she's sick. And now this leads me to doing sort of a, a diagnostic as best as I can. And then probably taking her to the emergency vet, right? These are all ways in which... Ideas are being made true in process to make sense out of the experiences that we're having and the matrix of other experiences that we use to, you know, our memories to make sense of the experiences of the present. So hopefully that example helps you out a little bit. So ideas are true so insofar as they help us, they assist us, they fit into satisfactory relation. We know when we don't have satisfactory relations because in the realm of the speculative, we are bothered by the fact that we can't make sense of things or we don't understand them or we're stuck in doubt. We know in the sense of the practical ranges when we were in satisfactory relation, when we can say, yes, I am actually happy with this as opposed to being irritated, vexed. Or we can say, well, I'm irritated, but I'm okay with this being irritated. That'd be satisfactory relation. Now, he also talks about this as saying that things are true for just so much, true in so far forth, true instrumentally, right? Truth is not something that is like, you know, a Hosanna on high coming down from the clouds once and for all. Instead, it's true to a certain extent. It's true in so far forth. It's true instrumentally as we can use it. And James is going to contrast this, as all the pragmatists will, against what he calls a rationalist conception of truth, which, by the way, many philosophical empiricists would also be representing as would be the people who today talk about the correspondence theory of truth and don't mean by it what philosophers actually mean, which is a particular understanding of truth and instead elevate it to mean this gigantic worldview where there's only correspondence theory and nothing else, right? That would be an example of what James is combating here. And he goes on and he calls this, Truth independent, truth that we find merely, truth no longer malleable to human need, truth incorrigible. In a word, such truth, he says, exists indeed superabundantly or is supposed to exist by rationalistically minded thinkers. And then he, he likens this to the dead heart of the living tree. Now, that means that it has some sort of usefulness, right? The heart of the tree, any given tree is mostly dead wood. And the growing stuff is on the outside, is it not? That's where the tree contacts reality. The dead wood is useful because it supports, it stays in place by its very rigidity, but it's dead. It's not gonna do anything for you. I suppose you could say, well, it's great for like, when we wanna make chalkboard frames or burn wood or (laughs) things like that, right? But not that good for the tree to be entirely dead, right? So he says that this is only the dead heart of the living tree. It's being there means only that truth has its paleontology and its prescriptions and may grow stiff with years of veteran service and petrified in men's regard by sheer antiquity. And so he's saying here, we don't want to say that there's no point whatsoever to this notion of truth, but this sort of static truth is eternal. Truth is, you know, whatever remains purely objective in all the circumstances totally independent of our interests and needs and desires. It does actually serve a purpose. It does have a legitimacy, but that's not pragmatic truth. Pragmatic truth is this truth as an instrument. And he will end here by saying that one way of thinking about this is that truth, he says, becomes a class name for all sorts of definite working values in experience. For the rationalist, it remains a pure abstraction to the bare name of which we must defer when the pragmatist undertakes to show in detail just why we must defer. The rationalist is unable to recognize the concretes from which his own abstraction is taken. He accuses us of denying truth, whereas we have only sought to trace exactly why people follow it and always ought to follow it so that truth for the pragmatist, it's still something very important and indeed quite robust but it's supposed to be serving human interests, needs and desires and driven by them and perhaps even revealing them in relation to other interest, desires and other truths. It's supposed to be a much more flexible and organic conception of truth that does justice to the ways in which ordinary people and philosophers and contemporary scientists use the conception of true and false.